Good morning. It's always exciting for Sandy and I to come up to Bellingham. We love this um, city, and we're really very encouraged by what's going on in this church. And uh, the, just the opportunity to be here is enough to get us excited and to minister a little bit with you is, uh, is a bonus. So thanks for being here this morning, especially if you're visiting, um, especially if you're not a follower of Christ but are uh, exploring Christianity or maybe you're just your friend just dragged you here and promised you lunch or something. That will work too. But um, we're going to look at one of the letters that a man named Paul wrote. The New Testament is made up, the last part of the Bible is made up of a lot of uh, different things. A lot of them are letters out, epistles written to the churches. And being a professional, I'm going to find the one I'm reading from here any moment now. Study this book for four and a half years or more at seminary. And um, here we are, Colossians chapter 1. So the Bible's written um, by a lot of people, but Paul wrote um, a big part of the New Testament. And he wrote this letter. I'm going to read a long portion of it. You can follow along um, in, I think it's page 843 or something. Is that the, the uh, ESV that you guys use, the extra special version? So we're going to read, and I'll be reading from that. Um, if you don't want to follow along, you can just listen. The church for thousands of years and in most parts of the world listens to the word read and doesn't follow Um, because it's just not available. But let's read now from God's word after I pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for your mercies and ask you please to, to teach us from your word by your Holy Spirit. This is the word of God to the church in Colossae. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it does also among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it, From Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in knowledge in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace 
by the blood of the cross. This is the word of the Lord. Well, i got to warn you, I'm going to use a couple of Lord of the Rings illustrations. It's something that preachers overused, especially around the time of the movies. But my disclaimer is I didn't even read the books till about four years after the movies. Uh, and that was only because I got sick of faking that conversation as a pastor. You know, and it got a lot easier to fake it after the movies than because I faked it my whole ministerial life, you know. So I ran to the movies right away so I could fake it a little less. And finally, I decided to read it. And uh, I was very glad that I did, of course. But I want to talk about one of the, uh, the opening of the book. I want to talk about Samwise, and I'm going to end with Samwise because he's the only character I can relate to. <laughs> you know, that's my best days, I'm Samwise. And so he is, if you'll remember, Gandalf is talking to Frodo and trying to talk to him about this great mission he has. And um, if you don't know the story, I'll tell you enough of it to understand. They're going to this epic journey to basically save the entire cosmos. That's the summary. And so it involves a ring, and he ends up with nine fingers. So now you know you don't need to see the movie or read the book. But he's talking about this with Gandalf, the great, um, the great patriarchal figure in the story. And Frodo's the hero of the story. And Samwise is outside the window, and he is uh, eavesdropping in this dialogue about what is going to happen in this epic journey and why it's important and why Frodo indeed is the one. And you don't really know he's there in the film. Um, you get some hints, of course, in the, in, the, in the book. But in the middle of this dialogue, Gandalf reaches through the window and uh, he grabs Samwise and he pulls him through the window. And when he does that, he recruits him into this great drama and this great story. He's got no idea what's happening. He's just heard a little bit about it. And all of a sudden, he's, he's a central figure in this epic story that carries on for thousands of pages um, through all sorts of parts of Middle Earth and beyond and, and through all kinds of drama. And that's a picture of the beginning of Christianity in a way. Um, you have, uh, if you're following Christ, you have, in a fashion, you've eavesdropped in the eternal counsel of the Father and the Son, and, uh, and it tweaked your heart, and God pulled you into this story. And what I want to help you see today is that uh, God's pulled you into a story that's much bigger and much more profound and much more significant than you imagine. Whether you've just started following Christ last week or this morning, or you've been with him your whole life, you've been drawn in to this um, redemptive drama that is so significant and substantial that it's going to finally consume and redeem the whole heavens and the whole earth under the person of Christ. And you are part of that, or God maybe this morning is calling you to be part of it. And when he does that, what we find out in this passage is that he teaches us an anthem about grace, about growth, and about the glory of his Son. When God draws us in to the drama of redemption, he teaches us a ballad, really, about grace, about growth, and then about the glory of his son. And you can see that in these three passages, these three parts, I should say, of the passage that we read. Take a look at the beginning of the, of the book, because it's really important to understand who is ultimately speaking to the church. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and the faithful brothers uh, in Christ at Colossae. Now, to be an apostle means to be sent, is an official term in the ancient world. It was like being an an ambassador of sorts. It was to speak officially and formally for another, to be sent on mission. And uh, the apostles of the New Testament, 
uh, Peter and Paul most prominently, but there were others. They sent um, to parts of the world with a message, this message of Christ. And the church in the early part of the, its life, even within the New Testament, recognized that these men spoke for God. In fact, Paul's words are called scripture by Peter in one of the letters in the New Testament. And the reason that that's significant is I want you to see how God feels about his church and what he thinks of those he's gathered in, including here Christ Church Bellingham. When you read ultimately in verse 3, we thank, uh, always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints, when you read that, you're hearing God's heart for his people. Remember, Paul has been sent by God to speak the words of God to the world that God made and to the people that God is gathering. And so what you find is that God's cherishing delight for the people of God becomes thanksgiving in the, on the lips of his servants. And he delights in the people of this little town. And it really wasn't a very impressive town. I'll talk about that in a moment. But what I want you to see, first of all, is that God sent, as it were, a troubadour. He sent someone to sing his song to his people. And it was Paul and ultimately his servant Epaphras, this man who left the the larger group of missionaries and went to this out-of-the-way town um, to preach the gospel And he taught this people this song. And that's really what happens when you first come to Christ. You're starting to learn this song that ends in this crescendo, this great passage about Christ at the end of the passage. And the very first verse of this song is about grace. It's about the goodness of God. It's about the very heart and the center of the Christian message and what makes it unique. You can start to see it unfold. Since we heard in verse 4 of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before, the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you and indeed is bearing fruit in the whole world. The very beginning of the Christian life is that fundamental message of the gospel, that announcement that God has made all things right in his son. Now, if you've heard this for the first time today, I want you to think carefully about it. If you've heard it your whole life, I want you to think especially carefully about it. When Paul celebrates the church at Colossae, the very beginning of it is the beginning of the journey. The beginning of the understanding that they have about the goodness of God in Christ. What is encapsulated with that one word, this word of good news. The the message of Christianity is an announcement, it's not advice. It is a declaration of what God has done. It's not a, a prescription, first of all, about what you and I need to do. But it's a message about what God has done in order to find his people. He came to you and is bearing fruit. Now, this message of the gospel is simple that we heard it earlier. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The central message of the gospel is that transaction. It's that um, trade, really. Jesus comes to us and he says, I'll take all that's messed up in you and I'll give you all that's right and beautiful in me. That's about that simple. We try to understand um, what's messed up in us. We can just see the cross and its brutality and his loneliness and his isolation and his cries. That's what was messed up in you. That's what it deserved. And Christ, in that transaction, takes that from you. All the times you've hurt others, all the times you've ignored others, how you've bent and I bend everything into ourselves. Jesus takes all that and he gives you the beauty and the love and the eternal fellowship and the kindness and the generosity and the wisdom that he possessed perfectly forever. 
And that's the gospel that the Colossians heard. That's the gospel that is preached in Bellingham here at this church and in in other churches as well, of course. And it's the very central message. The beginning theme of God in the gospels is that he's going to give us this very kind of hope, this love, this tenderness, and this kindness. And so that becomes ours. But he does it to a church or a city that's really uncool, and that's what I want you to hear about Colossae. It's really not very impressive. There were some much more impressive cities, like Philippi. Now that's got a garrison, a bunch of Roman soldiers. I hope nobody hears from Ellensburg, but Colossae is kind of like Ellensburg. I'm sorry. I probably just really ruined my relationship at Bellingham. But my, my point is, not that it's not a fine town, but it was easy to drive through on your way to somewhere else. Did that didn't help, did it? Totally did not help. But imagine Bellingham, imagine Bellingham without Boundary Bay, okay? Then you've got Colossae. Just got another small town with not much going for it. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I would love this place, and we would live up here if we could. But the point, really, aside from offending the audience and alienating them from whatever I say for the next 50 minutes, it's not going to be that long, is, um, is that God sends this song to really unimportant people in unimportant places. And that's really one of the, that's why I love this letter, because it really was not a sexy town in the ancient Roman world. It really, it wasn't unimportant, even in the Roman measurement of things. It was certainly tremendously important in God's measurement of things. And that this message, this song comes, we're told, in the New Testament to people that aren't the wealthy, that aren't the wise, that aren't the strong, but that are the weak. You know, like the call to worship this morning, come to me all you're weak and heavy laden. That's, that's, that's who God wants to sing to. And that's where the beginning of the song starts, is if you're not important, if you're not particularly significant, if you don't have much to offer, then God wants to sing this song to you. He wants to send his troubadour. He wants to send his, his um, minstrels out to sing this song to you and to teach you about the gospel. That, that's exactly the kind of person he loves. If you're strong enough, if you're wise enough, if you're cool enough as you are right now, then you're not ready for the gospel because it's not really for people that have it together. It's for people that will hear that song. When we were in Scotland um, on sabbatical for, um, in 04, and uh, we were there for a long time, like three months. It was very, very cool, real blessing. We would go to this church every Sunday that um, literally had, had pews that went straight up, like 90-degree angle pews, and your knees would hit the pew in front of you. It was the most uncomfortable church I've ever been in. And they didn't have any music because they did it the right way, the old ancient Presbyterian way. So they had no music, and um, they would have a presenter with a C. And, and the presenter's job would, one, to be one of the people in the congregation that could actually carry a tune. And then he would start off the song, and then he would lead the tune for everybody. And that's really what an apostle does. Apostle starts the song, and then he invites the congregation in to sing this message of the gospel. And what delighted God, what delighted God about the church in Colossae, what delighted God, what delighted Jesus about his disciples, what always delights the Holy Spirit is the very simple fact that you listen to the word that you heard. That's what gets the attention of our Father in heaven. You heard the gospel. You heard this gospel, he says. You listened. 
to the gospel, and it started to change you. Because hearing in the New Testament is not just getting the words. It's not just attending to them, but it's receiving them. And that's what's profound. Jesus, when he prayed, he said, I thank you for those you've given me. I gave them the words you gave me, and they received them. And that's what gets God's attention. That's the beginning, the very center, the, really the epicenter of the gospel. And that's what it takes. That's what God wants. That's what he sings. So the beginning of the gospel is this message that God comes and sends to us, and he wants the gospel to bear fruit in us. And I want to give you a little, some encouragement or maybe um, some discouragement if you're not totally signed on to the gospel in the church yet. And I want you to understand that Paul says here that the gospel's growing all over the world. And um, if you love Jesus, that's what you want, right? But you might say to yourself, wow, um, is, it, is the gospel really growing all over the world in the same way? And the answer is yes, absolutely it is. In fact, the gospel is growing more in your age right now, in the age we live in, growing more in more places and more profoundly than at any time in human history including the very first age of the church. Uh, census for a Center for World Mission, I just want to give, I don't want to throw out a lot of numbers. I don't usually do this, but these are important. About At 100 AD, it's estimated that there was one Christian for every 360 people. By 1,000, there was one for every 270 people. By 1,500, there was one Christian for every 85 people. By the year 1,900, one for every 21 people. By 1970, there's one for every 13 people. And by 2010, there was one for every 7.3 people. You live in the most profound movement of God's spirit, in the age with the most profound movement of God's spirit in the history of his people. And although that can be hard to discern when, and see when you live in Seattle or the Northwest, hey, guess what? My point earlier is now made in broader strokes. We think this part of the world is so cool and so important and so interesting. Guess what? God goes where he's needed and wanted. And um, God is going all over the world. But he's also doing stuff in the Northwest, which you guys are a part of. You are uh, very generous in your support for the work of the network. And the Church Planning Network has got 11, had 11 projects or active or already established in its history. We'll talk more about what's going on, but, but people are coming to Christ in these places. God is bearing fruit still all over the world, and I want you to see that. So now, but I want you to see something else, too. I want you to see that the very first verse of this song is that um, God wants us to learn the grace of his love and his power to bear fruit. The second verse is that he wants us to grow. And you can start to see that when Paul continues on in his prayer. Verse 9. And so from the day we heard of this, remember Paul did not preach the gospel first to this church. From the day we heard of this, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So this, if you will, is sort of... um, I don't know, maybe we could call it Gospel 201. It's not 
it's not um, something else in addition to the gospel. It's more of the gospel. And that more of the gospel is that God wants it to embed and to start transforming your life. That's why he prays. I pray, because we've heard this, that you may be filled. That's a very important word in the Bible. That means overtaken, consumed, saturated with a certain kind of knowledge about God. So let's, let's take that apart just a little bit. This is Paul's prayer for you. He wants you not to have a little bit, not to have a corner of your mind or a part of your heart or, or areas of your life. God is relentless and tenacious. He wants to consume you with knowledge of him. And that's really scary. Because God is a, a God without boundaries and without limits who won't be ultimately in his love told no. We can't say, no one gets to say, God, you can go anywhere you want in my life except this area, except this part, except my marriage, except my money, except my time, except my recreation, except my sexual life. You, you can go anywhere you want except, 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 because God wants us to be filled or saturated, consumed, overcome in our totality, with the knowledge of him. And in the Bible, that knowledge is not just an awareness, but it's intimacy. It's, uh, well, remember Adam and Eve? Adam knew Eve, and what happened? They did not become friends on Facebook. They had a baby. That's what knowledge means in the Bible. It's intimate union, one with the other. And that's how God wants to be known. In fact, the kind of knowledge that's used here is there are three little Greek words uh, letters, excuse me, that are put in front of the ordinary word of knowledge. It just intensifies it. So God wants deep, real, transforming knowledge. And, of course, that's not the kind of thing that's going to happen overnight. That's not the kind of thing that happens in a moment. You know, the Christian life um, sometimes has epiphanies, sometimes has spectacular moments of fellowship or revelation. And I thank God for those when I have them. But most of the time, it's four yards and a cloud of dust. You know, think of your Christian life in five to ten year chunks and just follow him and go deeper and deeper. That's what God's prayer is for you. This is what he says. Um, The same um, author to a different church I pray that the spirit of wisdom and revelation might open your eyes and enlighten them so that you may know the hope and the riches to which you were called. That's what he wants. And that's what he gives to his people. This is where God would have you go in the middle. He wants you to learn about who he is. That's the second verse that gets sung to you. First verse is God loves you. God loves you just as you are. That's the gospel. Now, this isn't something else in the gospel. It's more of the gospel. And God wants to, here's the second verse, God wants to rebuild you into what you can be, into what you are in Christ. And that's going to start to change, radically change the way you live. Um, there's a this man in the last century who could play the harmonica like nobody's business. And I'm not a big harmonica fan, but my mom gave me uh, this etching of Dan, Reverend Dan Smith. And, um, and he was a minister, and uh, he was a harmonica player, and the guy could just do the most phenomenal stuff. You can, you can YouTube him and you'll find him. But he said, I ain't never been to seminary, but I've been to Calvary. My mom gave me that when I graduated from seminary. And um, cool old dude, and you know what? That's the kind of knowledge that, that this passage is talking about. Real not, not anti-intellectual, but real, authentic encounter with the 
death and resurrection and ascension of Christ that can transform your life if you understand the second part of this song. Now listen to what, listen to the purpose of this knowledge. The purpose of this knowledge is transformation. It's movement. It's growth. It's direction. I want you to be filled, he says, with knowledge of his will, all spiritual wisdom and understanding for a purpose, right? He wants something out of this. Not so that you can be fascinating at your coffee shop, okay? But so that you may walk in a manner that's worthy of the Lord. Now, that's some heady language because the implication is that I can have learned the first verse of this great ballad and still not walk in a way that's worthy of the Lord. Well, I'll tell you my story in brief, and you'll understand that that could be true. I became a Christian. I didn't grow up believing anything about God, except that he was probably there, but maybe not. And um, he could generally be ignored. That was kind of the lesson. And so I um, was told about young life in high school, way back in the Midwest, and I told my buddy, who's still my best friend, I said, I don't do the religion thing. And, and so John literally, we were in the hallway, and John said, well, she goes. And then, and then he was like, well, she goes. And then it was like, well, she goes. And I all started to get more and more religious with every cute girl that walked down the hallway. And, um, and then, you know, about a year later, I became a Christian at camp. And the total classic camp experience, tears and everything, very dramatic. And um, then I went to college. And I went to college, and I became, um, basically became John Belushi in Animal House for two years. And it was pathetic. And I tell you what, um, that's not a good way to live. I tell you, it is not a good way to live. I can testify to that. It is lonely, painful, and um, incredibly uh, cancerous to your soul. So um, finally, after about two years of that, I was so down, I was so depressed, I started to think about God again. And, and here's what I thought. I literally thought this. Well, what's up with God? You know, I gave my life to God back in high school. That, that didn't work. Think about the logic of that, <laughs> okay? But that's how I thought. I met this guy on campus who um, shared the gospel with me, and his name was Steve Guthrie. And Steve had the booklet, Four Spiritual Laws, this thing that they used to, I guess they still use, but they definitely, definitely used it in the 80s. And so he's going through it, and he says, here's a prayer. And, and he said, you ready to pray this prayer? And I looked at him, and I said, I already did that. He did not miss a beat. He looked right at me and said, do it again. And so I did it again. And here's the thing. He never let me out of his sight. He was like that guy on uh, Pink Panther, you know, Cato. What's the guy's name? You know, that is like always supposed to make him on the edge so he can always fight off evil. He was with me all the time. He taught me how to walk. You know, within the next day on campus, I was sharing my faith with people. He just taught me how to walk by walking with me all the time. And um, that's what the second uh, verse is about. About walking in a way, not a, not a way that's perfect, because you will not be perfect, but a way that's faith forward, that lives not with perfect faith, but with faith that has integrity. Faith that has intention. 
faith that understands believing something has implications about money, time, sex, relationships, work, family, church, the city that you live in. It's a faith-forward kind of way to live. That's the way people of God live. The idea of walking is so fundamental to this second part of uh, this song. You can see it all through scriptures. Noah walked into the ark, right? Abraham walked up the mountain. Moses walked back to Egypt. The Israelites walked out of Egypt. Joshua walked around Jericho seven times. Gideon walked away from the wine press. And David walked up to Goliath. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego walked into the furnace. And Daniel walked into the lion's den. And Nehemiah walked around the wall. And John the Baptist walked to the Jordan. And Peter walked on water for a couple of steps. And then Paul walked to Damascus as a blind man. But Christianity is about walking. It's about moving. It's about stepping into the implications of the death and resurrection of Christ because you understand who he is and what he's done. And there is a kind of learning, there's a kind of awareness, there's a kind of fellowship that can only happen in movement and walking with God. I know from my own experience what I just told you about. You can know and not know. You can know and not know very well. You can know and know to hardly any effect. But until you move, until you walk, then you learn. Then you get the spiritual equivalent of muscle memory that teaches you the goodness of God, the rightness of his ways, the delight of his truth. Then you can really see and you really know. You can say, I've never been to seminary, but I've been to Calvary. I've been to Calvary when I'm struggling with my children. I've been to Calvary when I'm trying to love my boss. I've been to Calvary when I'm trying to serve the city. I'm walking in a way that's not perfect, but it's worthy. And you're starting to learn the second verse of the ballad of the king. When you walk in that way. And there's a benediction to that. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. These are words which are spoken to walkers, to people whose faith moves feet and lives and changes them. There's strength in that. There's a kind of strength, a kind of spiritual momentum, a kind of blessing from the Spirit of God that is given to us as we engage in his work, in his ways, in his purposes, in obedience to him that is withheld, really, from us without. Have you not known? This is from an Old Testament book called Isaiah 40, verses 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of heaven and earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might. He increases strength. Even you shall grow faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. The more you do spiritually, the more you engage and experience the power of God to live with him. He meets you in it. My son, our son Ian, who got into crew last year and has just absolutely been lit by the whole idea of rowing exactly in a boat to the point of, of um, collapsing. He is, uh, it's interesting to watch him. The more he does, the more energy he has. The fuller his schedule is, <laughs> Like, the more responsive he is to his responsibilities. 
the other day, he got up. There was an extra practice about a mile and a half from our house at Green Lake in Seattle. On Saturday morning at 7 o'clock. Like, not a regular practice. This is a practice for people who wanted to go. My son, on Saturday morning, got up at 6.15 to run down to practice at 7. I'm telling you, I don't know who this kid is. He is not my child. He's not the child we raised for the last 17 years. Because there's a kind of, there's kind of power to momentum in something as simple as, as crew, but it's multiplied by something as beautiful as spirituality. And that's the second part of the ballad. So there's grace, sing about the goodness and gospel of God. There's growth, sing about the goodness and the gospel of God again. But this all leads to this profound, this wonderful, this compelling song at the end of this passage about the preeminence and glory of Christ. Because that's really what you're going to live for. If you explore and embrace Christ, you'll ultimately be called to live for his story. See, remember I said that the, the Father brings us with the gospel into the story of his redemption. That's the story of Christ. He brings us into that and then teaches us a verse about grace, a verse about growth, so that we might really be able to sing the verse about the glory of God. He's delivered us into a kingdom, we're told. He's transferred us. He's given us um, a place and a status. And that's the first hint about really what God's been doing in you. If he's talked to you about his grace, if he's teaching you how to grow, he's, he's training you to participate in this new realm that you live in. And, and there's the hint, really. He's transferred you into the kingdom of the Son whom he loves, right? And so what that means is you're out of your own kingdom. You're out really of the world's kingdom, You now have a king, and the king has a kingdom, and it has values, and it has a mission. It has a message, and now you're in it. Now you start to see that this song is really not a song that's spoken just to you. It's not a song that's really even ultimately about you. I would say it's not really a song that ultimately is for you, but for someone greater. You've been transported, as it were, into this new place, into this new kingdom. You're no longer allied primarily with yourself or with darkness, but you're destined to something greater. And that is the glory of this king. Now, um, this is one of the the deepest and most profound uh, and exalted passages in all Scripture, and I'm not going to spend very much time on it, really, because it's one of those things, if you start, you have to do a whole series on it. But I want you to see a couple things about this, and we will read 15 through 20. Speaking of Christ, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's obviously speaking of creation. Now, listen to the the story of redemption. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so think about the 
profound message. First, the symmetry between creation and redemption. Think about the reality that Christ is the agent, and in him creation coheres, it holds together. But he has an even more intimate relationship called union with the church. Creation holds together in Christ, but the fullness of God dwells in Christ. Heralds his preexistence and his divinity, and that he's first above all things. Now that's a that's a uh, sixty second introduction to the profound theology of one of the most significant passages about Christ in all of the Bible. And I wish um, I'll leave it to Nate and others to unpack that for you. But I want you to see right now that there's something else there. That this is really a song. That this is a ballad. That this tells the story of the gospel in the most exalted kind of beautiful language. And in doing so, like every ballad, it's a narrative of the hero. He was equal with God. The image of God. Everything that was made. All that you've ever seen. Everything you've ever ate. All the air you ever breathed. All the beauty you ever beheld. Everyone you've ever touched. Everyone came through this Christ. It all came through him. But then look what happened to him. It ends, it begins there, and it ends with his blood on his cross. Not a cross, not Rome's cross. His cross. And the whole story of your hero. The whole story of his glory transpires in in between those two points in that song. The very image of God. Everything was his. Gives up everything that was his. And enters into that which he made to suffer. To take on all of its pain, all of its sin, all of its rebellion, all of its wounds. On his cross. What's striking is, of course it was his cross. Because it was his tree. Because it was his forest because it was his world, because the whole cosmos was created through him and by him and for him, and in him it all held together. Of course it was his cross. And of course only he could pay its penalty and take it up and make it right. And that's what you've been brought into. Creation and redemption. That's the story that your life is about now. It's a ballad. Where there's a ballad, there's a king in his kingdom. Where there's a ballad, there's an epic conflict with a protagonist and an antagonist and conflict and hope and despair. Where there's a ballad, there are forces and meanings and causes that are greater than that can be seen with the eye. And where there's a ballad, People must make a choice about who the hero is. And that's the song that you've been taken into. That's the whole story of the gospel. It's the whole story of the church. That's the whole story of the Christian life in 20 verses. Who's the story about? Who's the hero? Who is preeminent? Will you live for another Or will you take that one and what he's made and his church and will you bend it into yourself and use it for your purposes? Or will you ignore him? 
whose story are you in? You know, if you're not a Christian, I want you to know that Christians have the same struggles as you about this story. If you're not a Christian, you're basically saying that whatever God you choose, or maybe you choose no God, you're taking this whole world, this whole first verses that were made by and through and for him, and you'll use them for yourself, and you'll use them for your own story. The temptation for Christians is to then is to do the same thing, but in a baptized way. Now we take the church, and we take, we take its mission, and we take its values, and we start to use them for ourselves. It's just the way we're all bent into one another. But there comes a time over and over again when you have to ask yourself, who's the captain? Who's the story about? Who is the hero? Who's the commander? And who's a supportive character? Who is the song about? The more the song is about Christ and the less the song is about you, the more pleasing and more peaceful your life becomes. Because that's the way the world is. And that's the way the church is. And that's the way Christ is. And he pulls you through. The Father pulls you through that window and sets you on this journey. You did not know that it would cost everything from you and give everything more back to you. But here it is. Here you are, and here's this song. How many of the verses will you learn from this song? Will it just be the first verse, I tried that, that that hurt? Will it just be the second verse where you walk in a manner worthy, but ultimately it's about yourself? Or will it be the whole ballad, the whole ballad where you realize that everything you are and everything you have is being swept up in the story of the hero, of your king, of the Christ, your money, your time, your friendships, your property, your education, your craft, your trade, your children, your church, your dreams, your wounds, everything. I told you I'd use a couple illustrations from uh, Lord of the Rings. Here's the last one, and then we'll we'll finish with this, because it gives a picture of what waits for you if you and I will enter into this ballad, into this song, into this story, and give ourselves over to it. And all the hosts laughed. This is right at the end and wept. And they're at the feast. And the, in the midst of their merriment and tears, a clear voice of the minstrel rose like silver and gold, and all the men were hushed. And he sang to them, Now in the elven tongue, and now in the speech of the West, until their hearts were wounded with sweet words, overflowed, and their joy was like swords, and they passed and thought out to regions where pain and delight flow together and tears are the very wine of blessedness. And when they had a glad shout and swelled up, everything died down again to Sam's final complete satisfaction and pure joy. A minstrel of Gondor stood forth and knelt and begged leave to sing. And behold, this is what he said. Lo, Lord of and knights and men of valor, unashamed kings and princes and fair people of Gondor and riders of Rohan and sons of Elrond and all the rest. I will sing to you of Frodo, of the nine fingers and the ring of doom. But hear this, because this is what awaits those who live and sing all three verses. And when Sam heard that, he laughed aloud for sheer delight. And he stood up and he cried, O great glory and splendor, and all my wishes have come true. And then he wept. That's what every Christian should want for their own wedding. At the end, at the banquet, 
when the song is sung, the light that breaks forth in laughter and tears and satisfaction, that as we see it finally all together, we have been given everything we ever wanted. And that's the life of faith in song. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I ask for your mercies and I pray that you would help us to live um, these words and me especially now that I've preached them. I pray that you'd bless this church and that we would learn the song of grace and the song of growth and the song of the glory of your Son of God.